This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. You're right, I'm Jim, and this is the XS Long Player. Every podcast, I take a different album and I talk about the album with one of the people who made it. Sometimes an artist, sometimes a producer, or in the case of this episode, a label boss. Today on the XS Long Player, I'm talking to Alan McGee, boss of Creation Records, who I'm sure you know is the man that discovered Oasis when they played King Tut's nightclub. Up in Glasgow in the early 90s, he spotted them and said, those lads have got something that's worth having. On this show, you're going to hear Alan talking about the early days of Oasis, working with Noel and Liam Gallagher and the making of that classic debut album, what those sessions were like, while they had to sack the earlier producer. There is loads to go at. Normally at this point, I say, if you've not heard Oasis, definitely maybe. You've not heard the album we're talking about. Go and have a quick listen before you listen to the show. There's always a link in the podcast description. I don't think I need to do that today because I'm 100% sure that this is an album you will be massively familiar with. So let's just get stuck in. Alan McGee, boss of Creation Records at the time, now boss of It's Creation Baby, talking about Oasis, definitely maybe, on the XS Long Player. How you doing, Alan? Hey, Jim. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Really excited to be talking about an album that, for me, it was one of those life-changing albums musically. One of those times I listened to a piece of music and for the very first time went, this is someone who's making music for me as an individual. And it's the first time that happened in my life when I heard Oasis, definitely maybe. But we're not yeah. talking about me. We're talking about your involvement with this classic album. And I want to focus on just the album itself rather than the story of Oasis before and after. And as label boss of creation, as the man who discovered Oasis in King Tut's and kind of recognised something in them, going into the making of Definitely Maybe, for you, what was the most important thing that you needed to capture in this album? The one thing that when you stuck on Definitely Maybe needed to jump out of that finished article. That it was a representation of how good it was live because they were incredible live. The first time I saw them, they were great. Mm. And they'd done quite a lot of shows before that, before we went in and started recording it. I think it was November 94. But they had been playing a lot that summer. And I knew it was a, I knew that if, they just, if we could just capture what that band had live, it was going to be a brilliant record. I didn't think it was going to sell 7 million records or anything like that. I didn't, I, I, whatever it sold, right? I had no <laughs> idea what. But I thought, if I can capture that, it will be great. And I, I knew the live you know, sound, which was done by a guy called Mark Coyle, who really was far too good to be doing live sound, to be honest. He should have... I mean, he ended up with an ear problem, Mark, and he ever, never really 
got to his full potential, you know, as a live guy, because he could have mm. been one of the biggest ever, I think. So the, it was unusual. You would go and see this little band play the Water Rats, like January 94, something like that, right? And it was incredible. It was, and 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 we hadn't we hadn't captured it. And that's when we went to Sawmills right after that and started it, do you know what I mean? Well, let's go back to the first sessions for this album then, because you've kind of hinted at what happens there. Mm. And the early sessions, the early recordings, never actually saw the light of day, apart from one track, obviously, when you had the producer, Dave Batchelor, working yeah. on them. He's a great producer, Jim. He was a Mott the Hoople and sensational Alex Harvey Band's producer. Mm. So he wasn't, like... You know, he, you know, he wasn't a bad producer, but he was probably totally wrong person for that. And it was no, unbelievably, no usually gets a lot of it right. It's before he, he, he was just smashing it by getting a lot of things right. Mm. Uh, got most of it right in the early days. That's one of the reasons they, they launched so well. But he was the one, he, he had some code of the road sort of thing with, uh, with Dave Batchelor, who'd been had kind of fallen for grace for the mid-70s early 80s and ended up doing bands live sound and he'd been doing Inspiral Carpets Noel had been roadieing for Inspiral Carpets they had probably got some kind of bond late one night you know a few times and Noel said if I get signed you're producing the record and the shook on it so when I inherited the Oasis thing I inherited that loyal thing mm. and I was like okay Noel said one thing that I want Dave Batchelor to do this. I went, okay, I'll do it. So we spent 50 grand with Dave. And the thing, he, his recording techniques, Jim, were out of date, really, because he was trying to do it like the mid-70s that you... And we're, we're almost back there now, to be honest, right? But but uh, the mid-70s, you would break everything down. Nothing was live. So it was all about being a virtuoso player. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's not Oasis where. Oasis played really well, but they played well as a unit, not individually really at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? They were tame recordings and I listened to it and I, I knocked it back and I, we support a Marcus as well, their, their manager. We knocked it back and we, we put them in to start recording in January at Sawmill Studio in Devon. Is that a difficult call to make when you've heard those early sessions to kind of go, look lads, these aren't up to scratch, this isn't where we want, particularly when you've got that relationship between Noel, who's at the front of the band, and you've got Dave Batchelor, they've got this relationship already. To kind of go, look, this isn't working. That must be quite a difficult intervention to make. No, it's not. It's okay. Because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't friends with Dave Batchelor. My only, I was slave to the music. Mm. It was wrong. And they knew that. Noel knew that. Noel said at the time, which is an un another unbelievable Noel Gallagher comment at the time, right? It, you know, I, and he went, oh, we'll get it right. Well, don't, he goes, he goes, I don't know what's wrong with it. I think he said somewhat, we'll get it right next time. And I looked at him and went, there ain't a next time. We have to get it right now. Because mm. I knew in pop music, you have a moment. And if you don't walk through the door, you never have the moment. And I've had bands that, like Primal Scream and the Valentines that walk through, Libertines. And I've had bands that were good enough and don't make it. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. House of you know what I mean? And, and like, you know, a few bands like that, do you know what I mean? It's, it's arguably Teenage Fan Club. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant bands. But they lose, their, they lose their bottle at a certain point and you don't walk through the door. And if you don't walk through the door and grasp what is waiting for you, you know, there's always 500 other people that will take the mantle. Do you know what I mean? And I knew that with Oasis, there was a moment coming up and we had to get the record right. What would have happened if you'd settled for that first 
sessions like that first production of the album do you think it just wouldn't have happened for oasis i don't think it would have i don't think it would have you've cited the track that is on the album from that session which i think was slide away is that right was it slide away that was yeah yeah there was one track i remember no came in he was kicking about with some girl at the time and he came in to my office and played it with his new girlfriend or whatever or, or some i don't really know what the relationship was but he was he came in and it was, it was the only time i ever met her as well she he'd, he'd been kicking about with her, but and he came in and he played slide away and uh it was astonishing do you know what i mean and, mm. and i think that was I think we kept that version. I think pretty sure that was the only thing that 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 we we got from that first session. Did that make it worth the fifty grand you spent? Well, no, but <laughs> um, but it's, it's such a great track. You know what? I'm, I'm Scottish, of course. I'm going to say no to that. But, but I mean, you sold seven million records, so like financially, yeah, probably did. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what those early days were like of working with the band in the studio and them kind of making that first step into professional music because we always see Oasis as this band full of swagger and full of confidence and having absolutely zero self-doubts. But I'm sure as a band going into the studio, they must have had elements of that. Did you see any kind of uncertainty or nerves as they were going in and kind of stepping into making the album? No, there was no uncertainty, but they weren't right either. Do you know what I mean? It was Mm. like they got that wrong with Dave Batchelor and... There was never a point they thought it was, you know, they were uncertain. They just probably didn't know it was wrong. And that's when we we did make the intervention and went, we're changing it. And and then they, they got on board with that, you know, no. And you got to understand, at that point, the leader of the band by 500 miles was no. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and that's that was the real thing. It was like, Liam was a kid. He was 20. He looked great. He sang great. But he wasn't. It wasn't like Liam and No, like you know, these two big personalities. It was No, you know. I mean, we were dealing mm-hmm. with No. He was the leader of the band. Bell. He was. He was at that point twenty five, twenty six. Liam was twenty. Do you know what I mean? So it was a bit. It, we were dealing with No Gallagher. How much of the kind of involvement in those sessions and I mean, as, as label boss, I guess you wouldn't really expect you to be in and around the studio at that time. So were you? Okay. Sitting in your creation offices, getting masters and going, that's good, that's not, and leaving them to it and hoping for the best at that point? Yeah, mostly it was like that. I mean, there was a few times I went down. I mean, I won't bullshit you. I mean, there was a few times I went down, see them in the studio, but it just ended up me and no doing coke. Do you know what I mean? Really? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it was like, that's, that was a lot of that going on. But yeah, I would. I, I've never tried to say that I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a studio guy. I, but I know what I, th- I know what the band should sound like, and that was mm. my. I suppose that was my best thing for them, really, that, that I knew. Do you know what I mean? And and I was right. You know, one of the things that you would have had a say in was the lead track to come off that album, and mm. Supersonic was the first single, but Columbia was kind of released as a bit of a teaser track ahead of the album as well, which is an unusual choice because it doesn't, it's actually one of my favorite tracks of the album, but at the same time, it's not a track that you automatically associate with the sound of the rest of the album. What made you pick Columbia as the teaser and then Supersonic as the follow up single? What made you pick those two as the, the way that it, Oasis would announce their arrival? You're making it sound as if there was a plan. I, I mean, <laughs> okay. I liked Columbia, we put it out. It blew up. It got about fifty radio one plays. It was like fuck. It was. It was the reason it was getting fifty radio one plays, mate. Was dead simple. It was like a guy called Matthew Bannister had taken over Radio One. Mm. He chose and blah as a British band at Radio One. We're going to get behind. He wanted another one. It was going to be Suede. It, they decided at the last minute it was going to be Oasis. Oasis t- 
tested, I think is the word for it, brilliantly with their audience. So they got on board with Oasis. So that's what happened with, with Columbia. It blew up, right? And when everything blew up, it created a buzz for the first single. The first single was going to be Bring It On Down. Again, a song that I absolutely loved. I loved the lyric to it. And true story, I go down to the studio and I'm sitting there with Noel and uh, the guy that did the marketing, Tim, and Noel racks out a big line of cocaine for me and him. And he, I hoover it up and he puts supersonic on and about 15 seconds in to me, I've just done in the line of massive line of coke and he plays supersonic and he goes first single when I went first single. And that was how we decided on the first single Oasis. It was random. I don't think it was random in Noel Gallagher's part, but it was fucking random in my part. So Bring It On Down is naturally a track that made it onto the album. In that case, it was, was there disagreement about or was there no. hard decisions to be made as to what that track listing no. looked like? No, I just explained it to you, mate. They gave me a line of coke and I changed it. <laughs> Dead simple. And that was it. The decision was made. Yeah, there's been lots of creation decisions like that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, I, I think when Bobby Gillespie agreed to uh, the, the Confederate flag being on give out but don't give up, Tim Abbott put a big line of coke up his nose and then Bobby went, yeah, that's a great sleeve. So there's been a lot of things like that, you know. You're painting a picture of a label that doesn't do things the normal way. I'm so I've been sober for years, mate, 15 years. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's what it is. But it's like, yeah, I mean, it was, it, we, we, we were, we were like, yeah, we were, we were out of control for quite a long time, you know, seven or eight years, you know. One of the other things you did differently on this album was the promotion of it. Rather than kind of going to the enemy and taking out full page adverts or whatever, you were going to football magazines and fanzines and match programs and whatnot. You were kind of targeting the lads, I guess, to a certain extent. Was that, was that the thinking? Was it? Did you recognise this lad culture kind of creeping in that Oasis could be part of? I don't know if I did. I mean, I think maybe Tim Abbott was, did some of that, but I don't think it was that that broke Oasis. I think Oasis was a moment in time, and mm. it was a whole country identifying with these guys that looked amazing, dressed amazing, had amazing songs, and said good stuff. Music had been stale, and it had been, like, niche, and then suddenly this was all encompassing you could be you could be anybody and be into oasis you know what i mean and i think it was just the right band for the country at the right time yeah all the football kids got on it and all the post-acid house kids got on it and yeah it was a dead working class thing but there was lots of middle class people liked it as well i mean yeah. i mean it was sold we ended up selling 4.3 million Morning Glories is still in the top 40 25 years later. That's not football people that are buying that record. That's that's everybody. You know, that's your mum and dad. So in the first four days of Definitely Maybe's release, sold 100,000 copies. Firstly, did you break that news to the band? And do you remember no. the call of breaking that news? No, I was in rehab. I got a call on my answer phone that we were number one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that was mm. it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'd made the record with them and then I'd written any rehab and then I came out of rehab a bit. September 94 and then we put out whatever does that is that a regret for you the fact that you kind of missed out the, no. the crest I, I guess I did about six months I mean you know I just I was six months I was away that's fine I changed my life and I, I managed yeah. to stop taking drugs which was unbelievable and uh, I mean addiction's a long a long spiral I mean I've had lots of fights with addiction mainly to do with booze but I even I managed to stop the booze 15 years ago so it's good Pick a couple of highlights for me from this album. Highlights for you, Alan. It can be 
tracks that you love or it can be tracks that spark particular memories just stuff that kind of that you, when you listen to the album if you listen to this album brings you back to a certain time and place I love Slido eh? that's the best song on it but I mean it's, it's a great record I mean it's difficult sometimes to talk about that record because it's a bit like talking about Beatles songs or something do you know what I mean I mean mm. it's like it's so omnipresent it's like everybody knows a lot of these songs do you know what I mean cigarettes and alcohol and Live Forever, and, you know, there's great, great songs. I, I mean, look, I, I'm a fan of that band still, do you know what I mean, to this day, regardless of how many records are sold. It's still one of my favourite bands, you know. Do you put it up there with the Beatles, the Stones, the Jam, are, are Oasis and this album particularly on that same level for you? Yeah, the first two albums are, yeah, yeah. I like. I, I really like them, you know. Maybe not the Beatles, I mean, I don't think it's the Beatles. But, yeah, I mean, they're as, as, good, as good as all the other ones, yeah. When you look back at this album as a whole, from start to finish, can you think of many other debut albums that match up to it in terms of a band announcing themselves? Sex Pistols, amazing. Clash, they're sort of my gods, you know. Alan, lovely to talk to you. You've got your label now, It's Creation Baby, which is looking after a load of the newer artists. Clockworks are one of my favourites. So what are the plans for that going into the future? It's not any big plan. I'm just putting records out. The, the, the hardest thing... I mean, I've got some great bands. I've got this band, The Gulps, who are incredible. They're Italian, Spanish kids, really great punk rock and roll band. I've got this punk singer, Cat SFX, who's got a great record out in January, Rodeo. And I've got this other punk band, little punky hip-hop streets band called The Clockworks. But I'm just putting records out. The problem is now there's so much music, it's difficult for Andy to notice it anymore. Do you mm. know what I mean? That's the most difficult thing. But I mean, hopefully I'm putting out good quality stuff and hopefully eventually somebody goes, it's really good what you're doing, you know, and like, let's try and take it to a bigger level. But it's me and a telephone, mate. It's like, it's not the days that Alan McGee with 100 staff around the world. It's me and an iPhone. So it is what it is. It's, but I kind of enjoy it. I'm 61. I'm not trying to be the trailblazer. I'm just putting records out, you know. Do you still get that same buzz, the same buzz you got back in King Tut's when you went, who are these scallies on stage playing amazing music? Do you still get that kind of buzz when you find a new band that you think, these guys have got something special? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't know what that makes me. makes me be possibly a, a guy that's emotionally regressive or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I do. Alan, absolutely pleasure to talk to you. Really enjoyed chatting about a 100% classic album, definitely, maybe. Brilliant. All right, mate. Good seeing you. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. That's it. Awesome chat with Alan about Definitely Maybe. There's also a radio version of this show, so I take clips of the interview you just heard and I put it out on the radio. Play through the album as well on Excess Manchester, which is a radio station in Manchester. You can find it if you're not in Manchester at excessmanchester.co.uk. What I love about the podcast that you've just listened to, though, is that contained a whole load of snippets that, for reasons that I guess are pretty obvious, I couldn't play on the radio. So a really special podcast today. Make sure you check out previous shows in this series. If you haven't done so already, there's interviews with the likes of Embrace and Badly Drawn Boy and Clint Boone, who got a mention in that interview you just did in these spiral carpets. So go and check them all out. And if you like what you hear, please do follow, subscribe and leave a review. Let me know what you think on Apple Podcasts. But cheers to your ears. I'll see you for the next Excess Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester.